Welcome to Boom. Welcome to October's Boom episode. Yes, that was our scary Halloween intro. Yeah, but not too scary because I'm really, really scared of things. Like, I get startled so easily, so. It's true. And sometimes I'm just casually going up to tell <laughs> Hannah something and I, like, tap her on the shoulder and she falls out of her chair. <laughs> it's not just you, it's everyone. Who <laughs> <laughs> has been personally <laughs> victimized by Hannah <laughs> being so scared of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah happy october 3rd to everyone too that was mean girls day one five. Oh, oh yeah Hannah sent me about eight mean girls memes that day so that was wonderful <laughs> i told melissa that she's a pusher <laughs> um. welcome to biomechanics on our minds my name is melissa boswell and i'm hannah o'day and we're phd students at stanford university this podcast is brought to you by the international society of biomechanics it's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have biomechanics on our minds. It's also Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and it was just a year ago. Yeah, we had that awesome interview with Deirdre McGee, and we also interviewed a breast cancer survivor who works with Deirdre. Uh, Deirdre does research on um, breast cancer reconstruction and how, like, what muscles we use for the reconstruction can affect our functionality after reconstruction. And then we talked with a survivor who kind of, she gave us her experience of um, being able to actually work with biomechanists and kind of overcome some of the functionality issues she was having because they really thought about, you know, what movement she needed to be doing and like strengthening and, and that sort of thing. So it would be a good time. If you haven't listened to that, it's an awesome episode. Um, but today we also have some really fun guests on the podcast. Yes, today we're talking with Elena Grabowski, who's an assistant professor of integrative physiology at UC Boulder. And we actually saw her talk at ISB and we're really inspired to have her come on and uh, talk about her amazing research studying biomechanical and metabolic effects of prostheses and exoskeletons, especially in the context of helping para-athletes. Yeah. And then in addition to Elena, we have Roland Segrist. And Roland Segrist is the executive director of the organizing committee of the Cybathlon. Um, and if you haven't heard of the Cybathlon, it's an international competition where people with physical disabilities compete. And um, we just recently came across, we were learning about the Cybathlon and it. we looked up videos of it and it is like the coolest event. So it was super fun to talk to Roland and they have the next Cybathlon in 2020. So we get a little sneak peek into what that might look like, um, both the research that goes into the Cybathlon and um, what it's like for the participants. Yeah, it's kind of like an Olympics for researchers and their users. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really cool. But first... A bit of boom. Boom. (laughs) A bit of boom. (laughs) Bit of boom. The other day, Hannah was joking about uh, something that happens on the Tonight Show where they with Jimmy Fallon, with Jimmy yeah. Fallon and he is it song lyrics? Song lyrics. Yep. So he he input he puts song lyrics into Google Translate, translates it into a different language, and then translates it back into English. 
And um, sometimes, so the song lyrics end up jumbled and it's pretty funny. Um, so Hannah and I decided <laughs> to do a journal jumble this week to introduce the titles of our uh, Bits of Boom. <laughs> um, I have a, I'm going to have you try to guess what the title of this article is supposed to be. <laughs> okay. I'm so this was, this was translated to Somali and then translated back to English. How do novice and walkers move into their environments? An analysis of an infant's childhood video. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I have to give you the Afrikaans version also. (laughs) That will help. This will give you a little bit more of a tip. So let that one settle in, and then and then this is like my second hint. Exactly. How do beginners and improvisers move in their home environments? The gate video analysis of an open source baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay, so we went from novice to baby. Mm. And still, there's still infants in there. Yes. Um, but the open source is throwing me off. <laughs> An open source baby. Yeah, I'm a little concerned about what that might mean. For analysis of an infant's <laughs> home video. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I'm trying to think baby, new, oh, I bet that's the word novel. Mm. Maybe? So, it's actually, um, how do novice and improver walkers move in their home environments? And it is an open sourced infant skate video analysis. Oh, it is an infant skate it video analysis. It is about a baby, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. I think I got that. I got the definitely the first part from the first one. But yes. then the second, I think the second one actually threw Just me off. made it worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so this is a, a cool article um, that does actually analyze open source video of infants in their home environment. So, um, because there is biomechanical studies on, you know, babies and infants in the lab, but oftentimes, as we've mentioned, like being in the lab doesn't really capture what you're doing at home. So they took videos of infants in their home and then looked at differences in their like temporal gate parameters and found that infants, novice infants, (laughs) so like... Baby so like babies. New babies. Really, really new babies. <laughs> really new babies. Um, they, they walk with a lower cadence, so huh. their step frequency is slower, and then they have higher falls frequency. And then, and when babies fall, it's actually, like, the cutest thing. Like, I wonder what they consider as a fall, because sometimes, you know, they just kind of, like, tip over. Yeah. <laughs> or just, like, they just, like, go right into butt. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, their stance, space time, and double support time also increase. And then, but with increasing experiences, the cadence, the infant's cadence increases, and then the other parameters start to decrease a little bit. So they are able to uh, differentiate between those experienced babies mm. and those inexperienced babies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a little, I'm wondering a little bit about where they got all these videos of babies. Did they yeah. take them or were they it- like... Trying to crowdsource video, you know, like learn something from videos that were just collected. I think so. It was just done on YouTube. It so was? they just okay. found wow. videos that were shared on YouTube. Whoa. And and it's cool because like there's now a, there's a collection that anyone can use. Right. Yeah. And so and anyone can also can use these videos. And also 
Um, also, just look up other videos of, of people and do some cool mm. biomechanical analyses just from videos available online. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's awesome. And they're, you know, I have lots of friends with babies or just people that I know with babies. Mm-hmm. And there is a treasure trove of videos of those babies yeah. everywhere. Yeah, because so. everyone has the cutest baby. And exactly. so they want to share how cute their baby is. <laughs> <laughs> and now we can mine all of that for... And now, we- <laughs> now we can use all of this video. So keep posting photos of your baby. Yeah, thanks everyone for contributing <laughs> science. This isn't necessarily a bit of boom. I think that was a good bit of boom. This is just a journal jumble for you okay, because it. it's relevant to sort of what Melissa looks at or it might be relevant to something she knows about from our lab. So it's actually okay. a paper from our lab. I'll give you that hint. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've, that puts more pressure on it because it makes me feel like I should you know You really it. need to know it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you'll probably get it, but it's just funny. This is from English to Punjabi. Okay. And then back. Well, what you didn't know is I'm actually fluent in Punjabi, so I... Oh, no! <laughs> well, actually, that's good because... Well, I, mean, I can't read the Punjabi versions. <laughs> okay. The subject matter changes of the toe-in or toe-out jumps reduce the height of the knee joint to a non-personalized approach. <laughs> what? <laughs> Do you need okay, it again? Okay, so it's... <laughs> Okay, it says jumping, but it we don't do jumping in the lab, so I'm assuming that's gate or walk gate. Yeah, good job. Thank you. Good context clue. What did it say? The movement of the foot. Uh, reduce the height of the knee joint. Reduce the height to a non-personalized approach. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna take a wild guess just because I know this is what we study. <laughs> is it reductions in <laughs> knee adduction moment? It might just be and. Yes. Uh, but it is personalized. So they really took the opposite approach there by saying non-personalized, but it is in fact a personalized approach. It's true. It's the, so the actual title is subject specific modifications of toe in or toe out gate reduce the greater. What? Oh my God. It went wrong. (laughs) Did you type it in wrong? (laughs) No, I didn't. I went from Google Scholar. She did. This is my research fail. Well, it's so you know what happened. It's jumbled because Hannah (laughs) typed it in wrong. No, no, no. This is what happened. I went from Google Scholar to Afrikaans. Yes. And I was like, then I went back to English, and I was like, this isn't good enough. And then I took that English version. That's okay. So really, it went from the Afrikaans. The whole pipeline of. (laughs) I just kept going through like (laughs) you know transformations. We just went one rotation to one rotation. Wow, we're nerdy. Um, shoot. Okay, that's Let's, great. Should I say the actual? Oh, yes. Probably. <laughs> actual paper title. Who's by, the paper is by Scott Ulrich, right? Yes, who just did. And so Scott Ulrich just did an interview on our new series, Student Voices. And he's the author of the paper that Hannah's about to read the title of. Um, and he's a PhD student at Stanford and talks with a master's student, right? Yes, Grace. Grace, yes. Yes, I was confirming she's a master's student. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, but she asks, um, she just talks to Scott about what grad school is like and um, what to kind of expect. And he gives some really great advice that I think is helpful even now um, as I'm 
really getting up there in my grad school age. <laughs> it's still helpful things to think about. Anyway, so you should listen to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the actual article title was Subject-Specific Toe-In or Toe-Out Gate Modifications Reduce the Larger Knee Adduction Moment Peak more than a non-personalized approach. So I think it was getting oh. jump from peak. Yeah, it was, or height. Or height from... Oh, yeah, height. And then um, I don't know where it got jumped from. And then <laughs> it's more than a non-personalized approach. And for some reason, more than, it changed to two. Oh. So that's why it went non-personalized. That'll get you. That'll get you. So sorry about all that confusion. Yeah. But there we but go. But that's a good paper on, you it's know, how, why personalization is important when we're making gate modifications. And, and really, so this focuses on foot progression angle and finding the optimal angle to reduce the parameter that we're interested in, which is knee adduction. All right. So we should jump into our interviews. Yay. Let's jump in. <laughs> so today we are talking to Elena Grabowski, who is an assistant professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado Boulder. She runs the Applied Biomechanics Laboratory and studies the biomechanical and metabolic effects of prostheses and exoskeletons on walking, running, hopping, and sprinting. Thanks for talking with us, Elena. Uh, we were really inspired by your talk at ISB, and you detailed not only some of your amazing research, but also the reason for conducting some of that research in order to create better opportunities for athletes with prosthetics. And uh, we are wondering what first got you interested in biomechanics, and if you could just elaborate more on why you chose to be a bi biomechanist. Sure, yeah. Um I've been a runner for my whole life. My mom was a track coach. And so I've always been really interested in the way that people move, and especially in track and field events. So I would say that I was attracted to biomechanics at a pretty young age, but I didn't really know what it was at that point. Um, but later in life, uh, I really was uh, interested in being an athlete. And so that drew me into running and footwear. And I really got interested in footwear biomechanics. That sort of got me more interested in pursuing a, an academic career. And so I got my degree actually in the same department I'm in right now, but it was called the Department of Integrative Physio, or it's called the Department of Kinesiology back then. Um, now it's called the Department of Integrative Physiology. But that really piqued my interest in biomechanics. So kind of the sports biomechanics is what piqued your interest. And then how did you end up transitioning into more of the uh, prosthetics field? Yeah, um, so sports have always been something very interesting to me, and prosthetics really piqued my interest when I was a postdoc. Um, I did a postdoctoral fellowship with Hugh Herr out at MIT, and right around that time, a guy named Oscar Pistorius was kind of generating some controversy because he used running specific prostheses, and he has two amputations below the knees. Um, and he's so fast in the 400-meter sprint that he could qualify for the Olympics. And luckily, I was able to be a part of the research that allowed him to go ahead and compete in the Olympics. But there was some controversy along the way, and that really captivated me. Um, I wanted to know more about how prostheses affect performance and if there is, in fact, any sort of advantage or disadvantage to using those devices. So the controversy was around if he had an advantage using these prostheses um, or if that was fair for him to compete. Correct. Yeah, he had to abide by the rules of the IAAF, which is the International Association of Athletics Federations. 
And um, at the time, they didn't really have strong regulations about whether prostheses were able to be used to compete in uh, non-amputee events. Mm-hmm. But they basically did a study that they commissioned and found that his prostheses gave him an advantage. We kind of questioned that study uh, a little bit later on. But initially, the IAAF banned Oscar from competing based on the initial study. Um, we filed an appeal with Oscar and successfully defended that appeal. So he was able to compete and really looked at the results of this initial study and realized that it didn't seem totally correct. Um, so we did a bunch of research to really try to get at that. And then, of course, that really captivated me. And I was like, whoa, how do prostheses work? Right. You know, can we make it better? That's so fascinating. It's kind of a cool point in in time that biomechanics has, has gotten to the point where it's possible to surpass our human capabilities. Science fiction and movies have really, you know, got our imagination going strong. And we think that we're capable of more than what we're actually capable of right now. Yeah. And so your research right now actually, um, or what we saw at ISB was kind of presenting on a similar topic with um, Blake and I'm blanking on his last name, but who is an athlete? Blake Reaper. He should have been a long jumper. (laughs) (laughs) But can you talk a little bit about, I guess, what you're looking for when you're saying, um, seeing if athletes have an advantage over, uh, or yeah, over those without prostheses. And I was kind of wondering what are some of the, what are some of the components that you're looking for trying to analyze? So yeah, with, with Blake, it's, it's also a little bit unique. The IAAF has changed the rules a bit and put the burden of proof on the athlete to show that he does or doesn't have an advantage um, compared to non-amputees. And I think it's really tricky, actually, as a scientist to prove something like an advantage or disadvantage. Those words are really vague and challenging in that um, I don't think we know exactly what is an advantage or what isn't an advantage. But what we can do is compare how he runs to other athletes and try to get a sense of how maybe his biomechanics affect his performance at, in different aspects of the race. And so that's really where we're headed, I guess, or, or trying to kind of compare his values to those of elite level non-amputee athletes and try to make the comparison there. If you didn't have a prosthesis, like what it would look like. To, so it's like hard to, you, you don't have that interpersonal comparison. Right. And even if you did, I, I know um, one of the things that was asked at, towards the end of the talk was how how can you make that comparison between people that have amputations and non-amputees or people that don't have amputations? And what really is the ideal comparison? And even with a person, let's say a person's an amazing sprinter um, and we collect all the data that we could possibly collect on them and they're a non-amputee, and then they have a traumatic accident and they have both legs amputated below the knees. And then they recover and they become a sprinter again. It's still hard even within that same person. And, you know, we maybe do that same comparison. We, we measure everything we could possibly measure. Just even training or age or I don't know. There's so many other things, complications with an amputation that could potentially confound that controlled experiment in that ideal world. So I, I still think it's hard to compare, even within the same person. Um, anecdotally, 
been the same person. If they have had a traumatic amputation, they're never faster after their amputation. Like speaking about this, when you're talking about how like even a a healthy person pre-amputation and then post-amputation can look very different, even within the same person. What are some of the like specific parameters? Are you looking at like their speed, how they're turning? Um, You know, what specific things do you pay attention to when you're making these analyses? Yeah. So we try to think about the underlying biomechanics that might influence a certain kind of performance. So uh, more specifically, we've looked at how uh, people with and without amputations generate force on the starting blocks uh, to accelerate in the first part of the race and compare those. Uh, We look at how they perform around curves. Uh, We look at how fast they run on the straightaways or how much endurance that they have. Um, But there's a lot of metrics that we can't measure. And so that makes it a little more complicated. But the things that we can measure, we can definitely try to compare and get a sense for how that might influence performance. I see. I see. And then once you have these done these analyses and collected this data, traditionally we publish or uh, this research, but it seems like you're really passionate about taking this and translating it into a meaningful change, even at maybe a policy level or just so that it has an impact for the athletes you're working with. So could you just paint a picture of what that process looks like going from the normal data analysis and maybe or writing up to actually enacting a meaningful, impactful change for the people you care about. Yeah, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head with trying to make an impactful change. I think uh, fairness in sport is a really controversial issue, but I'm pretty passionate about trying to ensure that fairness is in sport. And so I think that's actually the underlying motivation for a lot of the studies on the high caliber athletes is to try to understand how they move and why it's so controversial that they might compete with a non-amputee. So uh, I am interested in publishing as well. I think that that's a really great way to get out the message and get out the results. But there's a few sort of roadblocks along the way. And one of those right now is just a legal roadblock. So we need to uh, provide compelling evidence to the IAAF to allow Blake to compete. And they may or may not decide to allow him to compete. And so then we may or may not go to the... Um, of arbitration and sport and try to appeal whatever ruling that they make. So right now, even though we would love to publish our results, we just can't. We need to wait until the legal proceedings have happened and then we'll publish our results. That's really interesting. And can you talk a little bit about, I know you can't really speak on, on half of Blake, but kind of through your interactions with him, what it means for him to be able to compete at this, at this level. I think it means the world to him to compete at this level. I think um, he's extremely motivated to compete at the highest level in sport, and that's really what the Olympics represents. Um, I think it represents more than that, too. It's it's a financial support for each of those athletes. So with that kind of high-caliber competition, uh, securing um, sponsors and, and really kind of making a name for themselves. I can imagine how important this is to him and it's amazing to see you supporting him and doing it in a way that we researchers like to see too with like with hard data and I was wondering I I'm from Boston and love following the Boston Marathon and all the hype around it recently saw that Adrian Hazlitt who is now a blade runner after losing her leg in the Boston Marathon bombing 
she posted that the Boston Athletic Association will actually have their first ever para-athletes division for the 2020 Boston Marathon. And so we're just wondering what your thoughts are on these types of divisions, especially since like what you just talked about, you're working to help athletes sort of not be separated into their own division. Um, So how, yeah, just what your perspectives are on this. Increasing a person's visibility is probably most paramount. I think um, having young people that have amputations have a role model and um, someone they can look up to and see that the world is still possible, that anything's really possible, I think is super important. And then when we get out down to more of the competition level, um, I think it depends a bit on the level of competition, but um, if you can be, if you can imagine being a person with an amputation that's at the very top end of their sport and they want more competition, but they can't get it because they're in a different division or class. And so that it's like, um, I, I don't know, it, it's, uh, it's not completely blending all of the different categories of all the different types of people that we are. It's a tricky question. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's good because we're, we're increasing visibility for people with amputations. I think that's super important. Um, but then for people that are really striving to have the greatest competition within their sport, um, I think it's, it, it's too bad that we're denying them the ability to do that. Yeah, well, thanks for talking with us about that. Going a little bit back to the biomechanics, what have you found to be kind of the most challenging biomechanical measurements to make with these athletes to try to do some of these comparisons? All of them, all of the above. <laughs> um, I think the most challenging thing is, is the, the amount of data that we'd like to collect on each athlete and how much time it takes to collect all of that data, um, especially in sprinting. So you're asking an athlete to basically perform as hard as they can. They're, they're at the very top level, they're sprinting as, as fast as they possibly can. And you can't have them do that more than once in a day, potentially, or maybe even in a, a couple of days. So you really have to think about timing and fatigue and making sure that you can capture the best and most accurate data possible. Yeah. So what do you do to like, um, ensure that it's the best and most accurate? Like, do you have multiple days of study? Because I could imagine that your measurements are going to differ. Like you said, they differ on day to day and they're going to differ maybe between what you're seeing in competition. Like, do you make those comparisons too with athletes, personal records and things like that? And how do you standardize all that? Yeah, that's a great question. And we do uh, spend a lot of time with each of the athletes. And so most of the big data collections that we're doing will take about a week. Um, and we, we really try to account for fatigue and um, talk to the athletes, make sure that they're not too sore, um, really, really try to figure out the best way that we can, again, try to capture the best data we can. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's really important. I forgot what you asked on the second question. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, just how you, like, I guess, do you compare back to competition? Thank you. Yeah, we, we haven't in the past really tried to compare our uh, biomechanical data collections to competition, but with Blake, we are. And I think oh, that's cool. really interesting, too. And, uh, I can't tell you too much about that, but it does seem to follow well with this competition, kind of what we've collected in the lab. What And what type of like interesting biomechanical questions have risen from your study with studying these these athletes in particular? 
Um, lots of questions, I'd say. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, some of the driving force for some of the uh, studies that we've done most recently has been how does the prosthetic configuration affect performance? So if we change the stiffness of the blade or we change the height or we change um, other aspects of that blade, the stiffness, uh, how does that affect performance? So we're kind of trying to understand just with commercially available prostheses how different designs might affect performance. And then in the future, I'm really hoping to sort of use the information that we've collected from all these different studies and try to start thinking about designs that might better a person's ability to run and sprint. When you're thinking about those designs, obviously you have a lot of like biomechanical factors in mind, but do athletes also report, um, I'm wondering about like comfort of these prosthetics or even aesthetics like do they I don't know if you have data on how those either correlate with performance or maybe don't (laughs) like um, just the socket fit might be one of the biggest neglected areas of research that we have right now we don't really understand how the fit of that influences their performance and it's likely that there's not a lot of comfort there so there's a phenomenon called socket pistoning where the the socket itself moves along the residual limb it can lead to a lot of skin discomfort. It can lead to a lot of sort of uh, just sensory discomfort in general. Um, you can have sweat that builds up in there, which makes it really hard to keep a prosthesis on your leg. Um, so there, there are many challenges, I think, with that. Those are custom designed for each athlete. But you can't, it's very hard to get an objective measure of comfort. We're working on it, but but it's still really tricky to kind of get inside there and figure out how that influences performance. Yeah, that's a really good point. If you, let's say you had unlimited resources, um, what would, what kind of data would you want to collect and how um, might this inform the future of like biomechanical studies? If, if it was kind of like um, no limitations in terms of technology or um, experiment. I mean, I, th- I think with unlimited resources, it would be really cool to see if different prosthet- how different prosthetic designs influ- influence performance and really see what the best design is. Does it include a lightweight motor um, or not? Uh, does it have a funky shape or, or not? What's its stiffness profile? How is it aligned with the person? How is it attached to the person? There's so many questions I I still am interested in and hope to get to um, as my career builds. Um, but yeah, I think I think it'd be really fun to be able to kind of explore all the possibilities of a prosthesis and see if we can come up with something that's better than the biological leg. Our biological legs do a pretty good job of accommodating all sorts of different speeds and turns and slopes. So if we could get a prosthesis to do that or more. Yeah, that's true. And, and you've done a lot with running. Do you think you would move into um, any other sports or activities? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's tricky. Um, each activity has different demands. And prostheses, well, running prostheses in general are, are sort of stupid devices. <laughs> right? they, don't, they don't have any actual in them. Um, there's no neural control of the person for that device. Um, so it's it's just a simple spring, and uh, I think it works pretty well for straight ahead running and sprinting potentially. But I think there's a lot we can do with 
how it might how you might ne- uh, negotiate obstacles or be able to run up and downhill or achieve different sports kind of the so i guess maybe this is a, a silly question or a naive question but is a running prosthetic its only purpose is for running like they would switch out if they're walking or doing some other activity that's correct so um there's some research actually that's compared walking prostheses and running prostheses for running <laughs> and it seems like running prostheses do a lot better job that's not surprising um but yeah so a person has uh, typically has two prostheses. If they're an athlete, they'll have one for walking around and another for running or any sort of high impact activity. Okay. And I was curious too, like how much does a subtle change in a prosthetic like affect the biomechanics of someone running? Like if it's just, you know, you're saying it's just a spring, like does a, a small change in, in the spring constant, like really change the biomechanics of, of a person running. It, it does. Yeah, we've, we've done a bunch of studies actually where we varied the stiffness of the prostheses and found that it does have an effect on biomechanics. It changes the, the leg stiffness, it sort of dictates the leg stiffness to a certain uh, effect. So yeah, it does have an effect. And how does that compare, sorry, to nat- like natural leg stiffness? Or do we know? It, it does compare pretty well to uh, biological leg stiffness. But then there are certain aspects that we don't totally know. And, and I was alluding to that before with the socket pistoning. There's some energy lost in the socket. We don't totally have a good measurement tool yet to be able to start to estimate how much energy loss is happening there. Yeah, if only we had, like, could put sensors inside people in all these different places. Like, we're doing all these wearable sensors outside. But, um, yeah, there's interactions we need. <laughs> I think there was also, like a poster at ISB kind of about how if there is, you know, depending on the, the sock that's inside and, and like these other things that are oh. in between, even if we had a device that's measuring that interface, it's maybe not necessarily like measuring it correctly because we have so many different layers too oh. in material. Makes sense. We actually have a device that we're playing around with that does try to measure socket pistoning. It's, it's a pretty device it's it's pretty simple and it's a magnet and a magnetic potentiometer basically you put a magnet on the residual limb and then you put a another magnet on the outside of the socket that goes along a potentiometer and gives you a voltage for a given amount of displacement you kind of then see inside the socket and measure how much the residual limb is moving regardless of how many socks or whatever you, you might need a stronger magnet if you have a lot more socks but But the idea is to try to kind of see inside the socket without having to destroy the socket in the process and and get a sense of how much movement is happening. And I don't know what's good or bad. That's another question. That's a good point. Like we can take these measurements, but then interpreting them for what they mean is is a whole nother problem. (laughs) So, yeah, well, thank you for talking with us about that. Uh, One question that we usually like to end with that we find is really exciting is learning about um, what you are most excited about for the future of biomechanics in this space or even beyond. Yeah, I think the future of biomechanics research is bright. Uh, I think it's really interesting from my perspective to think about how we can use biomechanics to influence device designs, whether that be prostheses or exoskeletons. And I'm hopeful that the future has 
these cool devices that enhance our ability to move, you know, whether we have an amputation or not. And uh, I'm to, to see that day. That kind of like comes full circle with your work. Like I think it's a huge win for biomechanics for you to be representing an ath- a para-athlete that's defending why they can be in with the other athletes or non-impaired athletes. Um, I think that's a huge win for biomechanics to, to even be on that playing field. Well, I hope so, but it's tricky. <laughs> There's People have strong opinions and they might not be based on biomechanics. So yeah, I, I sure hope so. I hope we can you know, fight the good fight. And um, yeah, but it's tricky. It's very tricky. Well, thank you for bringing your passion to your work every day and sharing that with us here on Boom. I think this, our listeners are really super excited. Yeah, we loved meeting you and we're just like so excited to talk to you. So and yeah. thank you, really. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Yeah, not, not that I can think of. All right. Yeah, well, thanks again. This is really fun. No problem at all. <laughs> we're here talking with Roland Sigrist, Executive Director of the Organizing Committee of the Cybiathlon The Cybiathlon is an international competition in which people with physical disabilities compete against each other to complete everyday tasks using state-of-the-art technical assistance systems. Roland, did we get that right? Yes, that's perfect. (laughs) We recently heard about the Cybiathlon from our advisor, and we were looking into it, and it's just a really amazing event. We were wondering what your inspiration was for being, well, when did you first become involved with it and what was your inspiration for being involved with the Cybathlon? Uh, yes, so um, I was a PhD student at ETH Zurich when uh, my professor, Robert Reiner, uh, came up with the idea of Cybathlon in 2013. Um, so uh, he just came up with this new idea and he asked me to, to join as the competition director. So I should um, write down the races and rules for the competition. So he had some ideas. He, he uh, had defined the six disciplines that are part of the championship. And um, I thought it's a really great idea and I'm interested in sports, in competitions. And uh, I thought it's a, it's a great initiative. So I joined, joined the the committee and took over the responsibility for the races and rules and the competition. So you were there from the beginning. Yeah, yes, almost. What was the first year that the Zaybathlon began? So yes, uh, after the idea in 2013, uh, the response from the media was was really high, and we announced the first Zaybathlon for 2016 in Zurich, hosted by ETH Zurich. Wow. And in like crafting, you said this was your professor's idea and in crafting the rules and everything. What were some of the goals or uh, missions of the Cybathlon that you guys created? So um, the observations of, of Professor Robert Reiner were when he traveled to different universities and laboratories that students have great ideas how to develop assistance systems for people with disabilities. But in the end, they never come to the market. So he, it was a pity and he thought, how can I acceler- accelerate the process from the laboratory to the market? How can we motivate the students to work together with the people with disabilities uh, in the development process? 
Then he came up with the idea of the competition with the daily life task where the people with disabilities use the assistive technology of, of the laboratories. Because if you want to win the competition, you have to work very closely together with the people with disabilities and develop devices that really meet the requirements of the people with disabilities. So this way, he, um, with the competition, he thought he can accelerate the, the process. So do like students or labs, how does that work? They come, they also come to the Cybathlon and bring their devices and then the, the competitors come and they, you call them pilots, right? They pilot the, the devices. Yes, uh, the competition is not limited to, to student or university teams. We invite also companies. Um, so we, we advertise the competition all over the world at conferences. Uh, we, we reached out to companies developing these systems. And the companies or universities or also NGOs um, come with a team that consists of the pilot, of the technology provider and some support person, of course. So it's always the team that competes, not only the pilot, not only the technology provider, but they, they team up. And the results of the competition show how good the device can work together with, with the pilot or vice versa. Yeah, that's great. So you said there's... There's six disciplines. So there's brain-computer interface, functional electrical stimulus, then there's a powered arm prosthesis, powered leg prosthesis, powered exoskeleton race, and a powered wheelchair race. Um, do you have a favorite event of the six? No, I do not really have a favorite because every discipline is, is quite special and has its, its unique challenges um, so also when we we are developing the rules uh, each discipline uh, is, is really different you cannot just copy paste the rules from the one discipline to the other obviously so um, yeah every discipline has its own fascination I think yeah that's amazing and do you ever foresee like do you foresee these disciplines changing over time or how do you how do you think in making these, do you think they're pretty static or? Yeah. Yeah. So when we, when we developed the first rule book, we were talking to a lot of people with disabilities using such technology. We were talking to experts, to professors, to those people who developed the technology. Uh, we need, we needed this knowledge to uh, create the rules and make the tasks in the competition really meaningful and we had the first rule book for the rehearsal in 2015 uh, where no audience was allowed then we did a, a revision of the rules for 2016 and in the last years we further developed the rules adapted the rules to the advances in technology and also to the feedback we, we got from the pilots, from the technology providers. And now we came up with a new rule book with some adapted tasks, some no, uh, novel tasks in order to push the development of assistive technology further and adapt it to the current state of the art. I really like this partnership of companies or laboratories with the actual people that are affected by their devices. What does the follow-up look like since it's now been three years since the first competition? Like, do you guys follow up with the winners? And like, what is what does winning mean for these teams? Does that give them funding? Does that recognition for their devices? Like, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about 
the impact the Cybathlon has? Yeah, so yeah, uh, the the teams profit in in different ways from from the Cybathlon competition. So the competition is very attractive. Uh, the audience, and we have a lot of audience, a lot of media interest. So the student teams can can uh, reach out for funding. And they can also say we compete at the Cybertron, so we get some visibility. The people are very much interested in the technology and what in what we do. The winners of Cybertron 2016, so the companies also used the the gold medal for for their um, for promotion. So um, they can use it for 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 this and. Also, the, the four years period gives these teams and the companies a motivation to to work harder, to work close together with the pilots, because they have to be ready on time at Cybertron, at the next Cybertron 2020. So they're really motivated. And it's, of course, also fun to compete. So uh, you see that in the faces of the teams and of the, of the pilots that it's really, that they really enjoy um, working together and competing together. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about what to expect at Cybathlon 2020? Yes. So um, we increased the number of starting slots to almost 100. So we have more teams and they are, again, from all over the world. 27 nations have registered uh, right now. Uh, We expect a lot of people in the arena and media attention and TV TV stations following the event. From the teams, we expect that they will this time compete, I would say, even harder because they have experienced the first competition, which was very new. And now they know what, what's, what is expected. And the first time they were quite overwhelmed because the first event was already very big. And now they know what's what's coming, and they prepare um, maybe in a different way. So we expect the races to be even closer. And um, yes, and we expect also that the that the range of performances, so the the best to the at least best um, team, is uh, smaller, so more more tight races. So there are a lot of teams that competed in the previous Cybathlon that are coming back again for next year's. Exactly. So we have about 50% of the starting slots for 2020 are taken by teams that already participated in 2016 and the other 50% are new teams. This also shows that um, our goals to push the development of assistive technologies really um, works new teams are built new student teams and they participate in, in cybathlon which is great yeah about do you know about how many teams participate um so at the moment we have uh, 81 teams registered for 2020 and we expect um about 100 so we have 96 uh, starting slots available and they typically do they typically just focus on one event or do teams overlap across multiple events? Yeah, so on our on our road to Cybertron 2020, we had also other events than the 
main event in Zurich in 2020. So we have been to Japan with the Cybertron wheelchair series uh, last May, where eight teams participated. Then we had the Cybertron arm and leg prosthesis series in Karlsruhe, Germany, and also the Cybertron BCI brain-computer interface series uh, in September in Graz. So we meet the teams at these events. The teams can test uh, their technology and the pilot performance at these events. Um, so we so we have met some of the teams on our road to 2020. How did the teams how did teams get involved with the Cybathlon? You mean how we reach them or? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in different ways. So ETH Zurich is a very famous university, one of the best in the world. So our professors and our students tra travel the world and have a very good network uh, and also communicate about Cybathlon. So we reach out through the teams by our ETH Zurich network. Um, then, of course, uh, since 2016, we are w very well known in the community. So the teams join the event because they know it's uh, a great platform to present themselves. Also, the university universities like to compete and connect with ETH Zurich and with other university on site and discuss about the possibilities and also limitations of, of technology. Do you have participants of all different ages in the um, competing or do you have like cutoffs? Um, so you, uh, pilot has to be 18 years old, but can uh, this is the only uh, inc inclusion criteria regar uh, regarding age. So everyone can compete that meets the inclusion criteria for the discipline. Yeah, it's like quite an undertaking that you guys have done really in creating like a whole new field of athletics or, or sort of functionality, I guess, um, an assessment. Can you speak about maybe some of the challenges that you had to overcome in doing this huge project? I think uh, when we started with, with the project, we did not really know how it will be in the end. So the first event was huge, but it has never been done before. So we did not know how the the people, the audience and the teams react to the to the setup in, in the in the big arena. Um, you, we have never experienced how people with the arm prosthesis uh, challenge themselves in a competition. Would that be attractive? Will the people be fascinated? But it turned out to be that it was very fascinating. So we were all overwhelmed also by the, by the audience that really was enthusiastic in the arena. So this was really then also a relief for us that the this turned out so, so well and the media and everyone was so happy after the first competition. So this was great. That's amazing. What do you think you're, so you've, you've said a lot of really awesome things about the Cybathlon. I was just curious about maybe what has been your like, favorite part about it or when you think about it, what's something that really stands out through your involvement with it? Yeah, I think, um, the connection to the teams and meeting the teams is is really great. There are many different stories uh, behind these teams, 
we have teams from from Russia, we have teams from South America, from from the US, from Europe, and all with with a different background, and they all meet at, at the Cybathlon and work for the same goals. So it's really great to to, to see the teams, the pilots, their emotions, and uh, that's that's for me the the core of the event. <laughs> Do you? Kind of on that theme, do you picture the Cybathlon? It's currently held in Zurich, is that true? Yes. Um, do you picture it like sort of being like the Olympics where it's held in different major places around the world? Exactly. So with the Cybathlon series, we already traveled the world. So we have been to Japan, uh, Germany, Austria, but also with, with the Cybathlon experience event, which is a more open format also to, to reach out to the public and Sometimes together with the teams, we have been to to the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. Uh, we have been to Brazil, um, to Singapore. So we really want to be a global platform and promote our goals, um, promoting inclusion um, worldwide with, with Cybathlon. And also for the next main event, we are evaluating at the moment where it could take place. Wow. Um, so yeah, this is really great. If you want to like, are there roles for volunteers or if you want to get involved in Cybathlon, what is the best way to go about doing that? So you can uh, check our website. You can register as a volunteer. So we need um, about 600 volunteers on site. Already about 500 volunteers have registered for the event. So it's really popular also to, to, to support us, which is uh, absolutely great. And uh, if you want to join the event as, as a, yeah, as a, uh, in the audience, you can already buy tickets. You can also find this on our website. And we will have a live stream as well in 2020 that everyone in the world can follow the competition. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I, Anna and I are really excited to see the Cybathlon um, in 2020. Um, what are you, what do you think you're most excited about for the future of the Cybathlon? I'm really interested where the development of these different technologies go. Um, we are also thinking about new disciplines, so we really follow the developments. And it would be great if we can really be a, a global platform, have global activities to promote inclusion of and with people with disabilities worldwide. We are just completely inspired by um, everything you've said, and we really appreciate you taking the time out of your really busy schedule to, to chat with us about this. And it really, your enthusiasm and everything really comes across genuinely. So it's really great work that you're doing, and we really appreciate it. And we're so excited to share it with our, our Boom listeners. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Okay, welcome to our favorite portion of the episode Research Fails. <laughs> I love that you say it like that, like, even though we're going to have a. <laughs> even though there's audio to there's go audio with it. audio that does that, yeah, but it's yeah. better when you do it live. Well, my research fail is 
sort of related to research. It's related to like the life side of research, like the fact that we're humans and that humans doing research have to work in different spaces and things like that. Yeah. Um, and since it's Halloween, it's a little spooky. <laughs> so, you know, anyone who's <laughs> faint of heart, just sit down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the labs that I work in, uh, due to, you know, a positive change in the lab, which is that we got new members. Mm-hmm. had to move spaces because our old lab was just too small and we were all crammed into an office space. So yeah. we were on the third floor in the hospital and then we moved to the basement. Oh. Yeah, the basement kind of looks like the basements. dungeon. Oh, no. Yeah. And so <clears throat> so we're traveling, we're trekking down the hallway. Then we get into our office space and it looks like really nice. You know when there's like kind of an you know, a house looks not really nice on the outside, but then it's, like, all brand new on the yeah, inside. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that. So, like, our space is really nice, and that's exciting. But I left lab to go to the bathroom the other day, and I walk down, and it is just down a hallway with one side is, like, normal hallway wall. The other side of the hallway is a chain link fence. Explain that to me. <laughs> it's true. She sent me a video. It's, like, the... Cre- and it's, like, super dark. It's so dark. And eerie. Yeah. And it's just yeah. a chain link fence. There's a chain it's link like, fence. And it dead ends. The, the hallway monsters. dead ends. And the bathroom is on the left side. Like, the doorway to the bathroom is on the left side. And the hallway dead ends in a little like left hand turn and you'd take the little tiny mm. left hand turn and there is literally a metal door nope. part way open no nope. and a plastic lawn chair sitting outside no. the metal door no was it moving literally by was itself. it rocking <laughs> <laughs> no but the like lights are completely off on that in that oh. little tiny section of hallway with the plastic lawn chair something happened there is all i can say there is definitely a situation that so, somebody might next time you turn that corner somebody might just be sitting so, in that lawn chair and they might not be alive. So you can, <laughs> this is my, I will never go to the bathroom. I will never go down that hallway. Like, I will never go to the bathroom in the basement. That's yeah. just, I've already signed off on that. Well, that, you know what? You'll just get some extra exercise. Exactly. You'll get to see the light for a little bit. Exactly. Which is important. <laughs> Those who are in the basement all day, go, go to the light. Go to the light. You, you need, need that vitamin you need D. Is that you need what a break. Yeah. Yep. It's D. Thanks. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Um, if anyone is dealing with a scary situation like that, yeah, feel free to share. Yes, because we want you to have the happiest environments. It's and true. Don't want it to be, you know, the setting of a of a scary movie. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it is Halloween. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Boom. I'm Hannah O'Day. I'm Melissa Boswell. Follow Biomechanics on our minds at Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM. And you can send us an email at BiomechanicsOnOurMinds at gmail.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, if you want to send us a research fail, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us um, on Twitter or through email. Or if you'd like to be part of the New Student Voices and have an idea of someone you'd like to interview, also feel free to reach out. Yeah. And um, yeah, so if you like the episode, if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or share the episode or any episode with a friend, a student, someone interested in biomechanics. Your mom. Yeah. Someone who would love Hannah's jokes. (laughs) Your dad. (laughs) 
Um, and we'd also like to say a big thank you to Peter Washington, who has made all of the awesome music that you hear throughout our episodes, as well as the International Society of Biomechanics for sponsoring us. Biomechanics off our minds. Boom. 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 Boom.